Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren. And through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers. Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Today I'm speaking with David Lewis, the executive director of Corruption Watch, whose mission in their own words is to disrupt the corrupt. Corruption Watch believes that it is our right and duty to hold our leaders to account. An interesting role at a time when in South Africa and around the world, power holders are under intense scrutiny. David is a product of South Africa's struggle for liberation, a union leader with a fundamental belief in the power of the collective. Today, David is a leader in a very different kind of struggle, engaging citizens to examine and rewrite our relationship to power and privilege. My name is David Lewis. I am currently the executive director of Corruption Watch. I've been in one way or another a political activist of one sort all my working life, which I think is how I see myself and how I know most other people see me. It's a pleasure to have you talking to us about your experience of activism during this incredibly interesting time in South Africa and around the globe. One of my observations of a lot of activists is that for big parts of their lives, they've moved in this insider-outsider role or they felt like outsiders. Mm. Talk a little bit about that. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of knew from the minutes I knew anything that I was going to leave Clarkstorp. And that was partly because that's what my parents, I think, wanted. It was a very politically and socially conservative environment. But, you know, although my parents were never strongly political people, their views were somewhat of a minority, if not exactly dissident. In fact, there was sort of a bit of a political identity in our family. You know, and it was nice, oddly enough, to be in the minority. And so, yeah you were a little bit aside by virtue of being Jewish in a place where that wasn't really something that was kind of understood or particularly liked. And, you know, that added to the fact that I just had quite a contrarian personality, I guess. And then I went to Witz and then went to UCT. And in UCT is where I became, you know, seriously engaged with political issues. And since then, my trajectory has been pretty much one directional. I had already started to become very involved in the union movement, which I was involved in for many years. And then with, like many unionists, jumped ship in 1990 or so when government prospects beckoned and then spent a lot of time in the government. And, you know, now I'm involved in this work, which feels a more natural place for me to be involved. Can you recall when your awareness and your sense of connection to a broader injustice when you started to say, as a young white man, I need to get engaged in a different way. I was very primed by childhood interest in politics and by my parents. It didn't mean that they trusted anybody who wasn't Jewish. My mother certainly, she always felt that just underneath the skin of every non-Jew was an anti-Semite. So issues of discrimination in that community were quite prevalent. And for South African Jews and Jews of my parents' generation, 
Most of them kept their heads down as far as they possibly could in the firm belief that next they would come for the Jews. And then amongst a minority, it led to very sort of outspoken mm. involvement in politics. And some of the great Jewish figures of the day mm. were very heavily involved in politics. And my parents never counseled me not to get involved in politics, including many years later when I was in the unions and was detained for a while and whatever. Can you recall what liberation meant to you? And how did that intersect with what you were experiencing in real time as you moved through the unions and your day-to-day -day experience with liberation? Did your own sense of what you were working for or toward start to evolve over time as you got more into the business of liberation? Yeah. Certainly my ideas, thinking about politics, evolved very quickly and significantly. But, you know, I then started doing economics and I started to understand about Marx and Although I was still very much an armchair revolutionary then, you know, going to demonstrations because I think everybody thought the best girls would be at the demonstrations <laughs> kind of thing. But, um, but, you know. So you recall that time fondly then. <laughs> but, um, and you describe this kind of awareness of yourself as a white male. Throughout all of this, were you acutely aware of your identity in that regard? Did you find it an asset to you in some ways, or was it a, a liability? I'm sure it was an asset. I mean, sometimes in times of intense internal conflict, that became a liability. But it was always construed as an asset to the movement, because you were conceived as being able to raise money more easily and write the kind of letters that were needed. And, you know, you had networks and connections. And that, by virtue of the colour of your skin, and really not a hell of a lot more. Do you recall feeling powerful? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did feel very powerful, and I felt very privileged. It was a rising movement. It was the biggest act in town. And, you know, people used to come to me to get access to the union movement. It was a very powerful position to be in. Yeah. And I think that that's a legitimate part of... Being human is wanting the power Maybe. to kind of change things, mm. that if we tap into that yeah. in appropriate ways, it might be what gives us the continued energy to keep pushing. Maybe. There are ways in which it can be abused. Of course. Enormously. And can you take us to 1994 and those years? What was your insider experience of that new government? Tell us what those early days were like? Well, I mean, it started a little earlier than 94. I mean, in about 1987, I'd say, when things were very bleak, it became clear that we were going to win this. You know? And so it started that process of preparation for when we would win and what we would do with the victory. And then after 1990, people from the liberation movement started to come back to South Africa. You know, their time had come, as it were. And then one of the people that I worked with very closely, Tito Boweni, got appointed the Minister of Labour, and he asked me to be his advisor, which I accepted with alacrity, as were so many other people who were doing. But in fact, we really deserted the union, civil society organisation, in troves, I'm afraid. But it was just so exciting. And there, I mean, people who you'd been in the trenches with and not occasionally in bed with, you know, suddenly are ministers and you were sort of addressed by your title and you addressed others by their title. I found that extremely alienating. 
So I never quite got that sense right. But maybe I was wrong, you know, maybe those signs of respect were needed. I don't think so. I think it was a setback. I think it was something that immediately established us as just part of the same old, Yeah. you know. I mean, that was the end of the revolution. Recycling, you know, yeah. It's fascinating to look back and what you're describing is the seeds in many ways of what we're seeing, which is the obsession with power and taking over the system rather than rethinking it fundamentally and those trappings of power Mm. that go along with it. I mean, in the moment, you're in a role where you're deeply questioning the powerful, demanding a degree of accountability from them. Which is what I've always done. But, you know, I think it took a very extreme form. I mean, there was no pretension that on a sort of social scale anything would be different but it assumed the same hierarchies that Mm. any other power structure assumed. I think what you're describing is fascinating and incredibly relevant as we look at opposition. You stand on the outside and you critique and question those in charge. When given the chance to be in charge, you simply take over. Do you think there was an honesty about that at the time? Did people genuinely think that they were going to reframe government, rethink the role of the powerful? Because that was certainly part of the liberation Mm. movement, was that there would be a very fundamentally different relationship between... And I think that they, for the most part, thought that they were doing so by virtue of social programs that were vastly distinct from those whom they succeeded. And they could satisfy themselves that they were doing good things. We could all satisfy ourselves that we were doing good things. I found the assumptions of the trappings of power, you know, happened so quickly that really took me by surprise. To be powerful, they had to assume all these trappings of power. I mean, that's what you're working against every day now, is the responsibility of those in power to the whole. I mean, that's what Corruption Mm, Watch is, that by assuming a position of power and authority within government, you have a responsibility. You're a servant. And so is Corruption Watch in some ways trying to reshape a little bit how we understand power and how we as everyday people engage with it? So yes, fighting corruption is about a fighting abuse of power. But I have no doubt that my energy for it. My engagement does have something to do with the idea that I don't like the posturings of people in power, not to mention their deeds. Corruption Watch deals with the deeds, but often a bad actor is signaled by the manner in which he engages with others and flows from there in Mm. terms of his policies and these abuses of power. And so Yes, I mean, Corruption Watch was a very natural progression for me. For a young man involved in the struggle to find himself the head of the Corruption Watch, it Mm. must have been a massive disillusionment, but what you're describing is a natural trajectory. I think that for many people that I know now, I mean, this whole process has been a severely disillusioning process. And in fact, you know, the thing that I question is, how did we all forget in 1990? The extent to which power is likely to be abused if it's not held accountable. That's where corruption took hold. I can't believe how we did that. And I'm seeing and speaking about quite a lot now the prospect of that happening again. You know, we'll win this current battle, not as decisively as we won the last battle. But I sense now that we're going to win this battle. You use the language of battle 
and of fighting and of winners mm. and losers. Mm. That's the metaphor. And now we find ourselves, and I say we, as a resident of South Africa, I mean, I personally feel as an American in another battle. I mean, there's a sense of being locked in struggle with those in power. Aren't we setting ourselves up in some way for that cycle to continue where once I'm in control, I will do as I please? That's embedded in the nature of a liberation movement, yes. actually. 20 years later, they can't conceive of being a loyal opposition, of sharing power. It'll be the downfall of the ANC. It is the downfall of the ANC, that inability. You know, when Zuma said the ANC will rule until Jesus comes, he meant it, you know. He couldn't conceive of anybody else assuming power. And it does have those connotations, and it is so easily abused. I mean, in some ways, we keep weaving in and out between ego and insecurity. Mm. Mm. It's an interesting story of the interplay between mm. those things. And in some ways, the position that you're in right now is born of both of those things. Standing on the outside, watching and mm. holding to account the very movement that you helped to bring in. You know, and who knows what would have happened. I'm very sort of engaged in politics, but I was never able or willing, both, to completely give up my life for politics. And what is it like right now to be a white male watchdog? difficult. It has complicated features. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I'm white, I'm dissident, I'm male, and I'm old. Those are not common features of the sort of leadership of civil society organizations. I think about it often. I suppose I have to face the fact that when I leave Corruption Watch, it will have to be in the next couple of years at the most. I don't know what I'd do, you know. And I fear that I would decline quite rapidly if I didn't have the stimulation of working with other people. But it's a complicated position to be in. I really do recognize that. It's, it's, and I suppose it's sometimes quite painful to have to go through that again. You know, in the union movement, frustration was not speaking the same language as other people very often, which was very disempowering and set you apart. Now, I mean, it's truly race that sets you apart. And it's, maybe it's South Africa. It's just a reality that I think has not been confronted enough. I mean, there's a global conversation yeah. about white privilege, about yeah. male privilege. Yeah. I mean, you've got the double whammy. Are you conscious yeah. of it as a privilege in yeah. your day-to-day -day workings, especially in the role of watchdog? Well, what I do know is that through you know, the last 40 years of my experience and the way in which the country has evolved, I have networks that nobody in our organization has. That's the privilege that I enjoy today. Vast experience, but of the vast networks that that experience brings. And there's a sort of always a slight stench of corruption, the fact that just because who you are by virtue of your age, which then earlier times by virtue of your education and your race, given you this incredible access. You know, even with the funders who very often in the forefront of transformation, it's by virtue of who you know and whose doors you can open or get opened. So you're still describing that same power yeah, structure yeah. and you're yeah. using it to yes, try and yes. hold it accountable at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yes. Again, we see globally, and I think what we see here, we certainly saw it in the U.S. election, is the angry white man 
starting to feel irrelevant or seeing his days numbered as the power broker. Do you feel that twilight of your relevance within this landscape? Really. Is that something that you feel or? I'm not pleased to say that I don't really find it so because the fact that white males remain as powerful as they are, you know, only makes those who can't mm. contest that power even more angry and frustrated, which is why you have to face the fact that it's not a bad idea to get out of the way. So where does this parallel discourse around victimization come from? I mean, I think it comes from a previous period of dominance in which mm. people have to just share in power. Mm suddenly them experiencing themselves as victims simply for that reason. I mean, I would never have been able to do the stuff that I've done had I been in any other country. Mm. You know, I got jobs and was assigned projects that I was woefully underqualified to do and that I would never have gotten had I been in the United States. And, you know, that's no longer the case. And it is the case sometimes that a young white adult would be overlooked for an opportunity for which he or she may in fact be the best candidate, but in which transformation objectives and affirmative action objectives dictate that somebody else should inch ahead of you in the stakes. But then, you know, the challenge is to go and do something else interesting. And I did that in the formation of Corruption Watch, which is why I think that, you know, when all this finishes, I might very well think of something else and start another new organization mm -hmm. again, because other possibilities are closed to me. That's what I think people in this kind of position of privilege are challenged to do. Is your ambition for Corruption Watch transformation, or is it merely a system of checks and balances that should exist anyway, but doesn't? I think I see it like that. You know, Corruption Watch is involved in transformation on a grand scale, but it's by way of transforming the power structure internally. The preoccupation is with the sort of demographics of the leadership of the organization. And in truth, it's a very diverse organization with the single problem that a white male is the head of it. And do you see it continuing? I mean, regardless of whatever happens as you say, in this current cycle of politics. Does Corruption Watch have a place forever? I would really hope so. I mean, I think that will be a test of whether we have really appreciated the sort of requirement to hold power accountable. We can't make the same mistake that we made again in 1990 and just head for government or head for business, as many people did. We really can't, and so I really do think Corruption Watch and many other civil society organizations that have re-emerged or emerged in this period have to view themselves as here for the long haul. Again, thinking of the U.S. context, that's a little bit of what we're seeing is this coming alive of civil society, yeah, yeah. a recognition that whatever is going on with government yeah. that leaves us feeling so profoundly disillusioned, yeah. the effect of it is to wake us yeah. up to the fact that there's an enduring need for yeah. an engaged yeah citizenry, regardless of who's in charge. And I hope stay awake. God knows, I don't know. Elizabeth Warren gets elected as president <laughs> of the United States. There will be the same imperative <laughs> yes. to hold that government accountable. I mean, there's no question about it. It might be easier. It might take different forms, mm. sometimes maybe more difficult in certain mm. respects. 
but it's absolutely critical. If we were to truly see a shift in power holders where people like you did get out of the way, can you truly imagine that? Not in some sort of immediate step change. I think over time it's changed, but I mean, you know, the old whites are still immensely, immensely powerful. You've described worry that we'll just kind of go through another cycle. In this watchdog role, do you see changes and do you feel hopeful that our systems of governance might be changing with younger people, with media, with social media, that the levers mm. of control that we have as ordinary people are changing the dynamics of that relationship? All of those have double edges. I mean, social media most mm. particularly of all. You know, I try not to think in categories of pessimism and optimism, but I don't feel that we will not get through this political situation that we're in. I think it's possible that we can get through it in a manner that doesn't simply repeat all the mistakes of the past as well, because I think some pretty brutal lessons should have been learnt. Those power relations, I don't feel despairing about, because maybe, you know, I'm hardwired to think about political solutions to political problems. So even if none of the solutions have ever worked out or if they're correct, that's what I can think about. The power relations that I do despair about are the headmaster sleeping with a 14-year-old kid and gang rapes. There's a profound lack of concern for others mm. at the sort of social, personal level. And I think that must obviously be a product of apartheid. It has a very strong basis in that. But I don't know how you change that. I don't think it changes naturally when the politics gets all right and that will be transformed. There's something very pathological about the way people treat each other in this country. We're never going to solve it if we tell ourselves we're a hospitable people who are kind to each other and whatever, we're not. So the government is a reflection of us? Yeah, to some extent I suppose it is. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. But it's also quite an interesting dynamic because I think a lot of people feel powerless in the face of government and it almost mm. seems futile. And yet what you're saying is, I can change myself yeah. and how I relate to others. Yeah. And does that then start a sort of ripple effect about how we relate to other people within our own positions of power? You very powerfully took the discussion of corruption down to another yeah, level, yeah. which is an interpersonal level. That interplay between the sort of interpersonal and the politics is definitely, definitely there. Oh, absolutely. And I think in some ways it might be the breakthrough to the cycle yeah. that you're describing. Yeah. I think it's fascinating to stop mm. saying Zuma must fall and start looking yeah. at what yeah. must fall within your own yeah. community yeah. and saying the problem doesn't exist outside of mm. me, the problem mm. is possibly me. I find young people, their willingness to own the problem, so they'd rather say I'm clean, and what about you being clean, and yeah. we are part of the problem kind of thing. And I think that they do that more readily than adults do, maybe because adults know how much responsibility they actually have to bear for the sort of rotten state that we're in, and they can't like, really accept that. Yeah, I think there's a degree of guilt that mm. exists around mm. this lot that we're leaving, and the fact that we don't necessarily have any solutions at yeah. the moment. You know, there isn't a clear way yeah. to point towards and thank you so much yeah. for <laughs> sharing your history and the history of activism.
your own experience of activism mm. from a time of being a young man to now. I think mm. in many ways it's sort of a parable for so many broader themes that we see playing out in South Africa and around the world. So thank you for that. Pleasure. I was expecting to meet a profoundly disillusioned struggle stalwart. An activist preoccupied with government and corporate accountability, pointing fingers, naming and blaming. And instead we met a man who in many ways has consistently played a watchdog role, keeping in check the excesses of those in charge. David broadened our understanding of where corruption begins and how we can collectively end it. And in the end, he reminds us that how we choose to exercise our own power and privilege is actually the starting point for anti-corruption work and that collective accountability starts with personal responsibility. I'm left wondering if we all need to spend less time pointing fingers and more time holding up our hands and accepting that true liberation starts with each one of us. Courageous Conversations is supported by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren, with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations. You can also visit gillianreilly.com slash podcasts for more information or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash courageous conversations. Thanks for listening.